Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Before we get into our show, we'd like to ask you to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow. And just a warning that there's some swearing in this episode, but since it's kids in a hall, it comes with the territory. I'm crushing your head. Welcome to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. I'm Colin Ellis. And I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Colin, I think we should ask for more than a five star. It should be like a 10 star. What do you think? <laughs> if Apple ever invents a 10 star, then we should definitely get it. On today's episode, we're going to be talking with director Reg Harkima about Kids in the Hall, Comedy Punks, a new documentary that explores the origins of the iconic Canadian comedy troupe. There's nothing in show business more exhausting than sketch comedy. We would do television, we would do tours, we would just never stop. Get that right. You know, Bruce and I started spitting at each other. We all had problems understanding that we were part of a group that was bigger than we were. Basically for me it was like, I need to do this. This might be the last thing I ever do. It was a fairly high probability that Scott was going to die. And I cuddled him, cradled him. And I said, you're not going to die. No one understands me as well as those four. No one. The kids and all this love story. It's the, the four worst people you could ever be forced to love for 40 years. So a little bit of scene setting, just in case you don't know these guys. Kids in the Hall formed in the 1980s and were made up of Dave Foley, Kevin McDonald, Mark McKinney, Bruce McCullough, and Scott Thompson. They performed together for a long time in Toronto at the Rivoli, which is a popular venue on the Queen Street West neighborhood often doing shows with three or four people in the audience. But then they exploded in popularity, and they launched a TV show on CBC. They made a really terrible movie called Brain Candy. They broke up, they got back together, and they've been touring ever since. Nam, how did you first hear about them? Okay, before I answer that, I might I think Brain Candy, it depends on who watched it, because some people really loved it. And it's got a cult following, yeah. Exactly, so just putting it out there. Um, so I used to watch them when the show was on CBC. I was a teenager living in a basement apartment in London, and I used to watch with my cousin and she would imitate one of the characters, the chicken lady, which literally was <laughs> which literally was one of the kids playing the role of a lady who happens to be a chicken. Uh, it sounds weird, but it was hilarious. Uh, the show used, it made us laugh in ways a few shows did. It, it didn't have, you know, SNL, Saturday Night Live. It's always seemed to be very polished, but Kids in the Hall was not that. Um, they weren't glossy picture perfect. And I think of a lot of people who felt like outsiders connected to the show, if you felt like a misfit, you saw yourself in Kids in the Hall. Yeah, I'm not surprised you mentioned Saturday Night Live because both shows were produced by Lauren Michaels, so they had that uh, connection. What did you think of their falling out? Um, I didn't even know they fell out because I was out of the country at the time, so I guess I must have missed that. I didn't know this until I watched the documentary. I, I appreciate how the doc uh, connected the dots of how they came together and the commonality of dealing with personal pain. Um, and I think that's why this it, it just seems to be such a, a unique bond. And I think that was part of what made the comedy great. The, uh, the, I think the group itself, after the fallout, I, they realized that the kids in the hall was bigger than any one person. And I'm glad to see all of them still together. I am too. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Reg Harkima, director of Kids in the Hall, Comedy Punks.
Well, Red Sharkima, thank you so much for joining me today on OnDocs. Hey, thanks. I have to ask how you discovered Kids in the Hall when you're, I guess, a younger man. Uh, well, I was part of that uh, primo Gen-, Gen X generation that uh, came to them on uh, CBC. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm from Vancouver, so I wasn't around during the the Rivoli days, but uh, um, I was able to, you know, I, I found I, a girlfriend actually said, hey, I'm watching the Kids in the Hall tonight and let's watch. And I, I was immediately kind of sucked in just because, you know, I'd been indoctrinated uh, um you know, I'd undergone Christian indoctrination for two <laughs> decades going to church. And uh, one of the first things I saw was like Buddy Cole, uh, um, <laughs> you know, a homosexual who I was uh, taught to hate, making me uh, laugh my ass off. And it just made me question, you know, what else have I been taught? You know, that uh, is clearly, you know, uh, uh, askew, if you will. And so they became kind of like a gateway drug into like a whole new uh, vision of the world for me. Do they sort of symbolize rebellion? Yeah, but, you know, I mean, they're part, I mean, for sure they're rebellious. I mean, they're rebellious to this day. Like, I mean, Kevin McDonald wouldn't even let us uh, uh, um, take the shine off of his forehead just because we were the authority <laughs> figures and he was a rebel, you know, when we did the interview. I mean, you know, to his credit, he's right. He doesn't look really shiny in the interview, but if you look closely, he's shinier than anyone else. So, yeah, they're, they're total uh, uh, nonconformist, anti-authoritarian rebellious but you know it was all part and parcel of like also like listening to you know nirvana and mud honey and all that stuff you know i mean i i think i think scott makes that point you know they were the comic arm of the grunge movement or the gen x movement you know or fred armison said something like the only comedy group that represented gen x so they yeah they were part of that whole thing so when did the seeds for this documentary begin to get planted i guess well this is interesting because you know i was like a total gun for hire Right. <laughs> so I, just just how this documentary actually happened, I've only learned in the last like month or so being on in Q&A's at uh, South by Southwest when my producers were up there and somebody's like, hey, how did this documentary get started? And, and apparently uh, my executive producer, Paul Myers, wrote the book, uh, a book called One Dumb Guy. And uh, Nick McKinney, my producer, had been filming some stuff of the kids in the hall in about 2015. And so he had some stuff and Paul had written the book and they were both like, it'd be a good idea to get a documentary going. Um, But they didn't really have the conditions until Amazon chose the kids in the hall reboot, like a new series of episodes as like one of their uh, um, uh, feature uh, uh, attractions to launch uh, uh, Prime Video Canada. So when I guess Paul and Nick heard about that, they just like swooped right in and said, would you be interested in a kids in the hall documentary as well? And Amazon said, yeah. And then Nick and Paul went around and shopped around for different production companies to uh, uh, get, get behind them. They partnered up with blue ant media who uh, um, the, 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 one of the high ups at blue ant is a woman, Laura Michael Chishin, who, uh, uh, had been uh, producing a uh, making of Twilight of the Ice Nymphs Guy Madden uh, movie back in Winnipeg in the mid 90s. And I was editing that movie. So I met her there. And like, you know, two and a half decades later, you know, she gets a cold email saying, hey, I just uh, did this thing uh, uh, for uh, Banger Films called This Is Pop. Or if you're interested in anything else. And she's like, calls me up and says, hey, I, you know, actually, we're looking for a director for Kids in the Hall right now. And, you know, interviewed with uh paul and uh nick and uh you know it took a couple weeks all that time i was like do they are the you know are they weirded out by the fact that my name is reg you know just kind of a 
a kids in the hall reference for those who get it. But, uh, you know, eventually it all got worked out and here we are. You mentioned some names in, uh, of people who are in the film. Fred Armiston is one of the uh, people that you interview. You interview quite a few comedy heavyweights. Uh, Mike Myers in this. I actually didn't know that he had performed with Kids in the Hall before they had a TV show. Lauren Michaels, who obviously discovered them and put them on the air. So talk, talk a little bit about, I guess, the process of selecting some of these uh, folks that you wanted to talk to. And we just like went for everyone. I mean, Mike Myers, um, I, again, his his older brother, Paul Myers, wrote... The, the, the book that uh, was uh, um, optioned for the movie. And Paul is a, an executive producer. So get, getting Mike Myers, I'm not going to say getting Mike Myers was not a problem. We were going to get him. And I mean, we had to jump through a lot of hoops because Mike Myers is you know not just an individual. He's an old yeah, he's entity. Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he, uh, uh, but, you know, but uh, eventually he, he sat down for the interview and it was a great interview. And, uh, you know, my, but we went after like so many people, you know, and it's all just a, a matter of, uh, um, you know, who's available, who, who has a special affection for uh, the kids in the hall and who wants to do the, uh, um, the interviews. I mean, I'm very uh, grateful for who we got. Like, you know, I, I remember we, I, I was sent to the, uh, um, to do some behind the scenes on the set for the reboot. And that day, Eddie Izzard was just dropping by to say hello because he was going to be in the re reboot on another day but wanted to just say hello to that day and i'm not really a comedy guy like i'm I, you know i did a movie called super duper alice cooper and that you know music has always been more my wheelhouse but you know you just see eddie izzard and it's just like holy fuck who is that and then you know run back home get on youtube it's like eddie izzard fuck she's fucking hilarious and uh, uh, then find out that she's in town shooting her own show and like, let's get Eddie Izzard, you know, and get your chase producer on it. And she was more than happy to carve out like a weekend to to come over and uh, do the interview. Well, well, I have to start. I guess we should go back to the beginning a little bit and how the kids in the hall sort of formed. Uh, I guess where did, where did they come from? How did they get their start? Well, I mean. Two of them were uh, from like Bruce is from Calgary uh, and uh, um, Mark happened to be in Calgary. He's from Ottawa. He's actually a child of the world since he was a diplomat's kid and traveled everywhere. Like the Mark McKinney story is pretty fascinating in itself. The people he's kind of met along the way, but he uh, found himself in uh, Calgary and the two of them, Bruce and Mark met at the loose moose Simultaneously, uh, Dave and uh, Kevin were meeting at uh, Second City in uh, Toronto because they were doing some classes there. And the two, the two uh, entities both started their own troops. And, you know, in Calgary, Bruce and Mark had a troop called The Audience. Kevin and Dave called themselves right from the get-go, the, pretty close to the get-go, kids in the hall. And then eventually the audience, Bruce and Mark's troop, moved to Toronto and met the kids in the hall, Dave and Kevin, and they all got along and just were like, you know, we're, we're on the same shows together and we're vibing. Let's just do our own troop. And then Scott showed up <laughs> with, <laughs> with donuts in his hands. He was so blown away by what he saw in a kids in the hall performance uh, um, that uh, as part of the routine, the kids had like strapped these donuts underneath the, the chairs in the audience and, uh, Scott uh, found them and started chucking them at 
the 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 troop while they're performing just so he could come up to them later and said hey i was a guy throwing donuts at you and then mark went and saw scott do some uh improv stuff and thought he was brilliant and they just had scott starting to to do stuff with them and then finally they were like you know he's he's the piece that we didn't even realize was missing and uh um you know was elevating their kind of energy their juice and they made him a member and he like he says he threw away the key and hasn't no one's gotten in since. Yeah, I want to name, for people who are, are maybe new, new kids in the hall, don't know them that well, I'll just name them all. There's Dave Foley, there's Bruce McCullough, there's Kevin McDonald, Mark McKinney, Scott Thompson. Uh, all kind of have very different personalities, but they're sort of connected in, in interesting ways. I thought it was interesting that, you know, a couple of them had uh, alcoholic fathers. How did that, I guess, play into their uh, comedy a bit? <laughs> Um, as Dave says in the movie, like, you know, being the child of an alcoholic makes you very uh, 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 aware of like emotions and mood swings. And uh, um, he his theory is that that lends itself uh, well to comedy and like, you know, this the things that drunk people say and they do can be incredibly hilarious. So, you know, if. We, we operated under this principle of like, you know, asking questions along the ideas of comedy equals tragedy plus time, because we knew there was like a bunch of tragedies within their all, all, all of their lives. And uh, they were able to take those tragedies and, and mine them uh, for comedic material. How did they eventually uh, get uh, noticed by TV executives? Well, I mean, when they were work- doing stuff at the Rivoli, uh, you know, they were all in their early twenties and it was, it, it's, it's akin to a, like, you know, like a rock band or something, you know, just you, you're young and you just believe in your art and you just do it and do it and do it and do it. And that's what they were doing. And they just kind of got better and, uh, started getting, uh, uh, notice in the, uh, local press and a great review of a best of show that they had done happened to be front and center of the Globe and Mail the day that uh, Lauren Michaels had sent scouts to Toronto to check out SCTV, right? But then they saw this review on the kids in the hall and they're like, oh, I guess we better check out them too. And it actually, it's a funny story in the doc, they phoned up, you know, whoever, one of the kids and Bruce answered the phone and basically said, oh, I'm sorry, it's sold out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe you can get a ticket from scalpers, you know. That was a good story. Yeah, they eventually... <laughs> They eventually figured it out. Uh, the rest of them figured it out to let let them in, and uh, then they even brought Lord Michaels himself down for an audition. And you know, Lord Michaels is Canadian, right? So he had all this American success with Saturday Night Live, but he himself started out as a comedian on the CBC, and you know, wanted to pay it all back. And uh, Bruce and Mark actually were invited to write for us now, which I know causes a little bit of jealous feelings amongst the troupe. But it didn't really work out for them, did it? No, I mean, it sounds like what they say in the dogs, it sounds like it was very overwhelming, right? Like to be like literally plucked from being a barista at the second cup or, or, uh, you know, doing uh, crazy improvs at the uh, uh, Loose Moose Theater in Calgary, you know, just like to to be taken out of that environment and then put into the stress of like high impact network television was just something they couldn't you know, uh, 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 deal with so quickly. They eventually learned how to deal with it, but in the moment they didn't. I remember Bruce telling me, it's not in the show, but I remember him telling me like, you know, trying to pitch 
the 30 Helens concept to someone at Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and it was just like people blanking, blanking on it. He was just, they were just too weird and experimental for Saturday Night Live. And they weren't rooted in that pop culture Saturday Night Live thing. That's not the humor they were doing. I'm sort of surprised that the CBC picked them up because I, I guess I sometimes attribute the CBC with being somewhat of a, maybe a, a bit of a conservative institution that wouldn't take such a risk on a group like that. Do you know kind of what, what they saw in the kids in the hall? Well, it's down to like basically one guy, Devon Fasson, who uh, um, uh, was working at Saturday Night Live as one of uh, um, uh, uh, Lauren's producers or production managers and uh, kind of got to know Bruce that year that Bruce and Mark were there. And then uh, uh, Yvonne left and went to CBC and the kids in the hall actually had a development deal with the HBO, um, but they blew through, like they went to Manhattan and did six months in New York doing a, uh, what they call a comedy boot camp because Lauren wanted them to get their chops up for American audiences, but they blew through their whole development deal. And uh, um, HBO wasn't going to pony up more money for the pilot. So Bruce, who's always been the one with the most sort of business sense, uh, ironically enough, since he dropped out of business school and he's the one who's <laughs> always writing hilarious sketches, you know, making fun of business people. He phoned up Yvonne and said, you know, like, we, we, we've got Lorne Michael interested, you know, you know, Lorne, maybe the CBC could get in and the, this, this, the state of CBC at the time, I guess, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not going to say it was stultifying and, and uh, boring, you know, because uh, maybe I'm wrong. Was SCTV not on CBC? Like there's there's a rich comedy tradition from Wayne and Schuster, you know, yeah. blah, 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 blah. So it just seemed natural. But at the same time, you know, a lot of the audience was skewing a bit older. And Yvonne really loved the the uh, uh, the kids and he had the Lorne clout. So and he was the guy in charge now. So he said, we're doing the show. You know, I remember the first time I saw uh, two men ever kiss was on kids in the hall. I'd never yeah. seen anything like that before. It was like, it was the most transgressive thing I, I think I'd seen at that point. I was pretty young. And, and honestly, kids in the hall was one of those shows that I discovered just by flipping channels. It wasn't something that, you know, like I didn't, it wasn't internet back then. Uh, it was, you know, it was either word of mouth or you just happened to catch it. And, you know, you see something like that and it's like, wait, what you can, what, 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 what am I watching here? Um, I guess if I wonder if you could just talk a bit about just sort of the transgressiveness of, of kids in the hall a bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're speaking to something that's pretty much my, my experience as well. Like I was mentioning before with buddy Cole, but yeah, there was like to be exposed to like queer gay themes in a, a mainstream. It's, it's hardly conveyed to people today. You know, it's, it's cause it, that, that was like 35 years ago or 30 years ago that the, the show was on and, you know, it's really hard to convey just how, uh, um, you know, mind blowing that was, you know, you obviously get it, but yeah, there was no gay representation. You know, if there was gay representation, 
it, on, on TV, it was kind of like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, Paul Lind, Hollywood Squares thing where, you know, yeah, we all know he's gay and we're going to make fun of him. You know, like Scott is the first one in that troop because, you know, God bless the troop as well. Right. You know, that they didn't have an issue with it. I, I asked them all these questions. It's like, you know, I explain what my, you know, my background is like, you know, I was told to hate gays. Like, how did you guys kind of come around away out of that thinking? And, you know, and uh, uh, A, you know, someone like Dave had a gay uncle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then the rest of them, you know, we're, we're in that kind of like, you know, I mean, again, it's hard to like, you know, going to university in the 80s. Like, I mean, the joke I like to say is like, you know, I had a liberal arts education. I've been woke so long, I'm starting to fall asleep. <laughs> right? And that's kind of what they were in that milieu. It was like a post-punk thing. You know, there was like a real strain of queerness in punk rock, you know, with Iggy and uh, Bowie. Not that they were gay, but they were certainly, uh, uh, you know, championing uh, um, the, the, the value, the, these sort of values. And the, and the kids were influenced uh by that and they just you know accepted f fucking scott is you know we are you know we are one of you know one of the freaks you know what's that we are we are one of us you know whatever that ramones thing is and escaping uh, um and then it extended to like you know Th through uh, uh, a lot of other themes. Like they were kind of coming at the, what I don't really get into the movie, but, you know, they were kind of coming at the tail end of the whole uh, uh, Reagan era, you know, this like rebirth of conservatism that we started to still see to today. And they were kind of pushing back against that. Like, you know, they made all the businessmen uh, um, sketches where they make fun of uh, businessmen. They make fun of religion, you know. And they it, make it, fun it, of police? They make Hell yeah. <laughs> Ongoing thing. And I, then and then and then actually just even making fun of the concept of drag by actually like, you know, giving the female characters, you know, points of view and you know, interesting situations and things to say. I also couldn't help but notice the the influence of of, of filmmakers like David Lynch and even Tarkovsky. Actually I didn't know this when I was watching at the time, of course, but this was something that I think Bruce spoke to just seeing those filmmakers have sort of like given them an influence or influencing just the, the sketches that they did. And I think one of those sketches, uh, it's a pretty famous one of theirs. And I think it's one of their best, the sausage, <laughs> the sausage. Oh, yeah. Because you, yeah, you talk a bit about just how, how that, that, that they were influenced by like filmmakers like David Lynch and Tarkovsky and that sort of thing. Well, I mean, you know, it was, it was part of the, uh, because I talked extensively to Kelly Macon, who's uh, uh, in the in the doc, and uh, he he filmed a lot of those uh, sketches. They had they you know they had uh, the the uh, lost man in the uh, Kids in the Hall story is a guy named John Blanchard who directed all the live sketches and so on. But then they also had various offshoot directors like Steven Sergic and John Pays and Kelly Macon and Mark Sawyer's and uh, 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 what Kelly Macon was telling me was that you know, Toronto at that time was kind of a cinema culture, you know, the cinema tech was going kind of strong, you know, you didn't have like VHS and DVDs was just coming in. But if you really wanted to go to movies, there were plenty of places to go see foreign movies and so on. Cause they weren't being 
serve. So it was just kind of a piece of the uh, cultural pie that they were eating. They went to, you know, they went and saw bands, they went and saw comedy, they went and saw uh, foreign films. And then when they were thrust into the medium of uh, uh, filmmaking and television and filmmaking themselves, they started bringing those influences in, in particular, like someone like Bruce and uh, Dave Foley as well, became very interested in the, the filmmaking process and directing. So when they got uh, um, started moving in that dire direction towards these short little films, um, the, all, all five of them kind of like just leapt in to kind of like, uh, uh, you know, spread their creative wings and tr try things out, you know, and then the result of it is, is like, you know, Bruce is now become like he just won a fucking CSA for directing, you know, he's become a director. One of Bruce's first movies, it might have been his first, was Superstar, and they direct. he directed it at my high school, Harvard Collegiate, shout out to them. I was a student there at the time, and it was such a thrill for us to see this film being shot there because it had Molly Shannon, it had Will Ferrell, it had Mark McKinney. Harlan Williams. And I, you know, it was just, I, I, I always think back on that time as being a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, um, you know, like you said, uh, the kids in the hall weren't going to last forever. And Bruce was like, I think I need a fucking job. So he yeah. found that job. <laughs> well, I mean, no, no comedy trooper band. I mean, I don't think there can, can exist without there being some, some friction and some tension. And I was surprised to learn about just what a disaster making the movie they did brain candy was. Can you just talk a bit about, I guess what happened behind the scenes? Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, it, it's interesting because there's a lot of like what I like to call weedy detail-y stuff about like the conflict that in the first cut of the doc, we just kind of passed over because I didn't want, you know, I, I just didn't think it was all that interesting to, to, to get into, you know, Dave's issue with the kids and their issues with him over this, like, you know, pilot he decided to do for news radio it all just seemed like reading in the details and then we sent rough cuts out to the rest of the, the the kids and and dave was just like you guys don't know the you know i told you the real story here you know <laughs> and you're and you're, and you're really uh, treating it in a facile kind of fashion and then amazon on the other hand was like we think there's a little bit more of this story with the troop and so I had my editor, Dave McMahon, on that, you know, section go revisit it. And he kind of built this whole thing where it was uh, um, uh, Dave Foley uh, um, chose to do this pilot and it kind of became a loyalty test within the troop. And Dave did not pass the loyalty test because he chose the pilot over the group and then resisted trying to do the film because he didn't have the time to do it and then uh, um, made his uh, um, involvement in the film contractually uh, be at its minimum. Um, and then there's other issues like he, he, he didn't want to do drag on brain candy, which uh, was very upsetting to Scott because uh, um, he felt like Dave was turning his back on the kids in the hall, sort of transgressive queerness, you know, whereas Dave, as Dave would say, he just didn't want to sit in hair and makeup for two hours. You know? He was also uh, the best looking woman too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, how much hair and makeup do you need to sit in Dave? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to ask though, you know, because 
they did eventually, I guess, heal their, their the wounds from their uh, breakup, and they and they had the second win on Comedy Central that got them a lot more exposure in the U.S. than I guess they did before. They reunited. They've done multiple tours. They now have a new season coming out on Amazon Prime. I'm wondering what kind of holds them together. It's just a fucking brotherhood, as cliched as that sounds. Like, you know, I mean, that's kind of thematically what the movie is. I mean, I would never, like, you know, put that in a, you know, maybe I would put it in a pitch package, actually. I would never reduce the movie to that. But that really is what 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 it's about i mean it's like I, even in the trailer we have right now i think kevin says something like you know no one understands me like those four guys no one and it's just this shared uh uh collective experience you know and and and, and all the, and they're they all do like little solo things but because it's a comedy troupe a, a little solo thing does not impact the collective the way like you know keith richards or mick jagger doing a solo album you know would would throw the the continuation of the stones into to existence you know it's just they they've they've come to realize that collectively they can do all their little things on their own but collectively they're better together they're coming back at a very uh interesting time for comedy because now people are sort of worried about being canceled. Sketches or, or routines that someone did, you know, 20 years ago are being are kind of coming back to haunt certain comedians. I wonder if they have any anxiety about that. They have extreme anxiety about it, you know. Uh, um, so, yeah, they're a, a, a little bit freaked out about it. But then, you know, I watched the trailer for the series. I haven't actually seen the series, right? You know, I've just seen, like, clips and I saw the trailer. And I was like, they're being pretty... Transgressive, at least in the self-referential stuff of like you know calling Amazon the devil and you know <laughs> stuff well, there. So they haven't they haven't like uh, you know they haven't calmed down. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see it. And I, I, I we have to wrap up our conversation, but this has been such a fun conversation. Uh, this has been such a fun conversation. I just wonder if there's any uh, thoughts you want to leave us with about the kids in the hall, about the doc, or about their legacy at all. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I go into like, I mean, as was Super Duper Alice Cooper, this, this, this was uh, uh, the Kids in the Hall where, I mean, someone I'd obviously uh, heard of, but I wasn't like a fanatic of. But, you know, once you start investigating the body of work, um, you almost uh, approach it with like kind of a messianic fervor, you know. And so in the same way that I wanted to kind of elevate Alice Cooper to a, a, a greater place in rock history than just being the clown prince of rock and roll. You know, it's like those four Alice Cooper albums in the early seventies are as good as like the Stones albums of that time. In that same way, I, I would like to uh, see people consider the kids in the hall in the uh, same uh, air as or breath as like the Marx brothers and Monty Python. You know, if, if, if there's one goal I have, it's to, to you know, expose uh, the kids in the hall to the world, and, you know, in, in that level. I mean, that's kind of, you know, if, if I can go on a quick little tangent here, that's kind of what uh, uh, my, my editor, Peter Dennis, when he was doing a first assembly, he started putting all this classical music in. Like, I was like, oh, kids in the hall, we're going to do, we're gonna, you know, Shadow Amen and like rock and roll and their comedy punks and shit. But he started putting all this classical music in. And it weirdly elevated them in terms of their intellectuality, like in terms of their consideration of them as like, you know, art, art, artistic beings. And I left it in there because that's exactly what I want. I want them to be considered, you know, in the upper levels of comedy genius. I think you succeeded. Reg, oh, thank you so much it. for joining me really today. really appreciate thank you. you saying that, Colin. Thank you. My pleasure. And that's the podcast. 
If you didn't catch Kids in the Hall Comedy Punks at this year's Hot Docs Film Festival, you can catch it on Amazon Prime on May 20th. They also have a whole new show coming out on Amazon on May 14th. I'm going to be watching. And while you're here, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about us. It helps new listeners to find the show. You can follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. And you can follow me at Namshine, all one word. Thanks to producer and editor Matthew O'Mara, senior producer Katie O'Connor, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, and executive producer Laurie Few. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next screening. <laughs> <laughs>